Welcome to EM Pulse, bringing research and expert opinion to the bedside. We're your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. A patient came today seeking an abortion. She traveled on an airplane for the first time ever from a state with an abortion ban, using her whole paycheck to buy tickets and rent a hotel. She left our clinic today by emergency medical services and was transported to the local emergency department for suicidal ideation. She was raped two months ago. Each episode of morning sickness causes post-traumatic stress disorder so intense that she tried to take her life yesterday. If abortion was legal in her home state, several things would have been different. One, she could have accessed an abortion more promptly. Two, perhaps, therefore, she wouldn't have had an escalation of PTSD such that she had tried to kill herself. And three, she'd have more money in her bank account. Super important given that she's a single parent in her family who doesn't support abortion even in cases of rape. Just kick them both out. She did not get her abortion in our clinic today because she felt she was too emotionally unstable, that she wanted to go to the ED first. I fully support her decision to know herself best and to decide for herself. I fear for her life, the ongoing pregnancy, her young child. I fear she won't have money to return and get her abortion. I fear she could just kill herself first. Welcome back. The story you just heard was from Care Post Row, a report by UCSF. They collected stories of clinical care that was different from the usual standard due to new laws since June of 2022. The report was published in May 2023. It illustrates that healthcare providers have seen increased morbidity, exacerbated pregnancy complications, and an inability to provide time-sensitive care in states with abortion bans. Now, if you work in an emergency department in a state where abortions are legal, you may ask, how does the topic of post-row care apply to me? Now, Sarah, this was an important topic for you. Can you explain why? Yeah, well, first of all, I personally feel strongly that abortion is health care and should be a discussion between a pregnant patient and their doctor. And I worry that this is becoming increasingly threatened and that this is scary and confusing for patients. And when things are scary and confusing, many people come to us in the ED for help. I have already seen patients who have been affected by recent legal changes, and I anticipate that we're going to see many more. I also worry about serious health complications when people attempt to abort the pregnancy on their own without a healthcare professional involved. I had hoped that, quote, back alley abortions were a thing of the past, but now I'm not so sure. I think those are all really great points, and we'll get more into those during the interview. I think another way that this is applicable to me, just purely as a physician, not even a pediatric emergency medicine physician, is that intersection of where judges and Congress are making decisions for my patients instead of the patient and physician doing that. And also the implication of a judge overriding the FDA on a medication approval feels very applicable to me. This is obviously a politically sensitive topic, so it's worthwhile to say again, all of the opinions in this podcast represent personal opinions, not the Department of Emergency Medicine or UC Davis. And this interview was recorded on August 21st, 2023, and things are changing constantly, so things may change even after this has been recorded and published. 
To understand this complicated and evolving topic better, we spoke with my friend and med school colleague, Dr. Amy Paris. Amy is a complex family planning subspecialist practicing in an academic hospital in New Hampshire. Welcome, Amy. I am so excited to have you on. You know, Amy, I think that since we started this podcast, Sarah has been telling me (laughs) about her friend, Amy, and how we have to get her onto the podcast. And then the world of reproductive health and medicine kind of like what imploded, exploded, something along those lines, inverted, something along. <laughs> and um, and so Sarah was like, okay, this is it. Now is the time. We got to get Amy on this podcast. So I'm super glad to finally meet you and have you here today with us, Amy. Yeah. And this is a super important topic. So I really appreciate your expertise here. Let's start pretty broad. Can you give us an overview of some of the recent legislative changes and how they've impacted the landscape of reproductive health care? I think the really big one was the Dobbs decision. That was the earthquake, I think, in our landscape. And that was in June of 22, so just over a year now. The Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade. And so before Dobbs, Our landscape under Roe was that abortion was generally protected until viability. And fetal viability is generally thought to occur around 24 weeks gestation. And that, you know, there's a little bit of play with that. But it was more rare for abortion to be restricted before viability. Um, And then what Dobbs did was basically throughout Roe and now said that every state has the right to regulate for its citizens whether and when abortion will be permitted. So now we're in a situation where there are no federal protections on the right to abortion and every state is doing its own thing. And we have a huge range in the United States from states that have taken steps to protect abortion access in the wake of Dobbs to states that have really, really moved toward or have enacted complete and total bans on abortion. So, you know, it's incredibly inequitable, the landscape in the United States, and it has affected people differently depending on where they live and, you know, what their zip code is. How does this apply to us specifically in the emergency department, what should we be aware of when treating patients? It really varies incredibly depending on where you're practicing, I think. Where I am in New Hampshire, we're kind of a medium state. We we don't have any protections, but we don't have severe restrictions on abortion. And so Clinically, I think that our providers haven't seen a huge uptick in some of the things that you might see in a state if you were practicing in one of the states that has an abortion ban. One thing that we in the family planning community have seen, and we don't have good data on this yet, but we think is increasing, is um, self-managed abortion. So this is the idea that people will obtain abortion not through healthcare providers and instead through other means. And there are safe and unsafe ways to obtain a self-managed abortion. So there are some telemedicine providers that are still accessible to people in banned states that will do basically a medication abortion, which is a combination of mifepristone and mesoprostol, two medications that we know are very safe to affect an abortion. 
And preliminarily, from what's been studied, it actually looks like people can access this via telemedicine and without a healthcare provider, you know, really involved and, and do an abortion safely. But also, people will self-manage their abortion in unsafe ways as well. And so there are kind of herbs that people will take or, you know, self-ingest poisons or inflict abdominal or vaginal trauma to try to affect abortions. And so that certainly is something that can land them in the emergency room. I think in cases where people have um, done self-managed abortion with mifepristone and mesoprostol, you still might see them in the emergency room, even though this is a safe combination of medicines, because you know, they may be just wanting a medical provider to take a look at them and reassure them that what's going on, you know, is safe, that they're, you know, maybe they want reassurance that their abortion is complete. Maybe they don't know where to look for further medical care. And so I think you will see a lot of the things along those lines as well. Yeah, I mean, I think my concern, and, and we haven't seen too much of it yet, but again, we're in a state where we're less restricted. And so so I think we're either going to see people, you know, coming in with complications or questions about self-managed abortions, or I think we may see people coming in actually looking for that help coming from states where things are more restricted. So I think we could see a lot of things. From a pediatrician standpoint, some of the questions that I have with this landscape change is, like some of the teenagers that I see come in with pregnancies that are unwanted or they're not sure if they're wanted, I feel like that psychological impact along with some of the signs and symptoms of pregnancy, that just even a normal pregnancy, um, are often magnified when you have those stressors. And so those for me, at least in the emergency department, are patients that are often bouncing back with nausea and vomiting and like concerns or questions about this and access for that. And so I feel like those patients are often when there's a question about the desire for for this pregnancy, there's often a lot more visits for symptoms. And then also, as somebody who sees kids, I wonder if there's any data, Amy, out there on what are the long-term implications for these kids who are coming into families that, for whatever reasons, don't have the desire or the resources or the ability to care for these kids that they're now going to be responsible for for 18 years. Is there any data that's out there on that? Yeah, that's a great point. So there was a great study that was done and written into a book called The Turnaway Study. It actually wasn't from the, the kid's point of view. It was from the point of view of a, a patient who had tried to access an abortion and was turned away for whatever reason, you know, gestational age, not available in their area. And they found kind of exactly what you would expect is that people did worse in their mental health. They were stuck in abusive relationships. They weren't able to earn as much money as people who ha had been able to access abortion. And so continuing cycles of poverty is an issue. And then so as you can imagine, the children born into these families are, you know, not born into a situation where they're a wanted child or a, a child that can be provided for. And so that's obviously not ideal for them. Yeah. And I don't know, perhaps it has been studied. I'm sure it has been, but I'm not aware of any literature on kind of like what are the effects on the kid that was born from an unwanted pregnancy. In this particular case, 
the obstetrician had a patient with a presumed ectopic pregnancy and had opted for management with methotrexate. Methotrexate is usually administered by the emergency department in outpatient scenarios. The OB had sent her patient into the ER and received a page from the emergency medicine physician there questioning whether he was permitted to give the methotrexate given the, quote, new legal climate. He expressed concern for legal liability for treating with methotrexate given the ectopic was only presumed. The OB paged me as the on-call physician asking what to do. She, as have I, had had patients rupture their fallopian tubes with HCG levels such as this patient. While the patient was currently clinically stable, the OB was dismayed she was potentially being refused the treatment option she had chosen and is considered a standard of care choice in this situation. I confirmed with the OB and with our dual opinion and documentation, the patient did get the methotrexate. So there's so many differences out there, and especially like you said, things are very different state by state. Are there any specific laws or policies that emergency physicians should be aware of when treating patients? Or is there a place to go to kind of know what to do in your state? I think the the big picture is that emergency physicians' job is to provide life-saving and life-stabilizing care, and that's covered under the EMTALA laws. So last year, the Biden administration issued a clarification on EMTALA that said where federal law conflicts with state law, the federal EMTALA protections prevail. Now, some of the states are trying to contest that in court, but what he specifically said or what the administration specifically said was that in cases where abortion is part of life-saving care in the emergency setting, that is protected. Like you are supposed to give that care. You know, we are professionally obligated to give that care, but also legally protected to give that care. And so that's the first, I think, important legal landscape thing. And then I think it's really important for you as a ED physician or as, as any physician to be familiar with the laws in your state. And I think that there's not a great central database for that. There are some websites that kind of show kind of generally, are you in a protective or a banned state? But I think it's it's so much more nuanced than that. And even if you're in a banned state, it's very confusing what is legal and what isn't legal, because a lot of the times the people making these laws are not healthcare providers, and they're making laws about things that kind of don't happen in real practice or don't make sense. And it's a lot about how is this going to be interpreted in a court of law. And so that's where like you, your hospital's legal team has to be involved, your risk managers. And I think that, you know, what is happening is that the hospital's legal teams in various states are kind of getting together and being like, what does this mean? How is this going to be interpreted? And having to kind of float that down to their care provider team, which is a really unsatisfying answer, I realize it would be really nice if you could just be like, hey, I'm practicing in the middle of the night and this thing just came up and can I look up, you know, if I can or can't do X. But the reality is, I think that that these laws are designed to be very muddy and they're designed to be confusing and, and instill fear. And in that way, they they not only prohibit people from getting abortions by the letter of their law, but they actually cast a wider pall by instilling fear and chilling effect on taking care of pregnant people. Can I go back to that question that you asked about EMTALA and the clarification that Biden made? Can you give me an example of how that would apply to reproductive health care management in the emergency department? 
Yeah. So a pregnant person is coming in with some kind of life-threatening complication, be it a hemorrhage or something else that's happening for which abortion is life-saving. So first trimester bleeding. Um, sometimes we can see terrible hemorrhages before the embryo has actually demised and passed. And so so one of the effects of these laws has been, um, and I think this comes up a lot more for OBGYNs than ED physicians, but is like, most states have um, exceptions for the life of the mother. So, you know, there's an abortion ban, but if it's for a life-saving treatment, you know, you can do it. And so the position it's putting OBGYNs in, which is crazy and untenable, is waiting for people to be in a life-threatening situation before they can provide an abortion. But that was a little bit of a tangent because you asked, how would this show up in the ED? And so I think about things like a, a manual vacuum aspiration in the ED, which is a, you know, emptying the uterus procedure in someone who is hemorrhaging. That would be a good example. I think of perimortem C-sections, although that's not usually an abortion, but, you know, there could be a case where someone is at a periviable gestation Someone could come into the ED pregnant and you don't know their gestational age and you can tell by fundal height that maybe it's around 24 weeks, it could be 22, could be 28, and this person comes in with a cardiac arrest. And we know that we, after providing several minutes of CPR, if we haven't resuscitated the mother, then we perform a C-section because it's life-saving for the mother. And so you could get into the situation where someone accused you because you you didn't know you thought this was a 26-weeker, but it actually was a 22-weeker and it came out and it was not viable and you just did an abortion to save the mother but the mother was going to die if you didn't do that. So that's the kind of thing that an MTALA law would protect that kind of life-saving intervention um, for a pregnant person. So Amy, how have some of these changes after Dobbs actually impacted care and what providers can do? Yeah, so the impacts have been, you know, the obvious things like forcing people to carry pregnancies that they don't want or can't provide for. Um, you know, I think what many people don't realize, but healthcare providers realize is that pregnancy is risky, particularly unplanned, unexpected pregnancies and people with um, already pretty severe medical problems, that pregnancy can be life threatening. And so we're taking risks with people's lives by forcing them to carry pregnancies that they don't want. That's the first and kind of more obvious thing. And then the other way that I think that this has really changed care, and there's a really interesting project on this called Care Post Row. The Care Post Row project is really interesting because they are collecting stories of deviations from standard of care that have occurred because of the effects of the Dobbs decision. And so clinicians submit to them stories and they are appalling if you read through it. It's like things like a pregnant person having premature pre-viable rupture of membrane. So breaking their water in the second trimester, which is, we know, not compatible with being able to continue the pregnancy and can often end up in life-threatening infection for the woman. And, you know, the, the baby, the, the fetus can't mature its lungs because there's no amniotic fluid. So there's not a good fetal prognosis either. But these patients are being forced to continue their pregnancy until they're septic in the ICU or the fetus demises, and then the doctors can intervene. Or there are other stories about people with ectopic pregnancy, and ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy that's not in the uterus. 
So a pregnancy in the fallopian tubes that that's never going to grow and develop and, and, you know, have a birth. It's going to rupture the tube, but stories of OBGYNs not being able to intervene on these patients until the tube starts to bleed or rupture, and then it becomes a life-threatening situation, and then they can intervene. And so certainly these patients can end up in the emergency room and be someone that, that you would see if you were an ED provider in a banned state, someone whose provider was sitting on their ectopic pregnancy until it started to show signs of rupture so that they could intervene. We were talking about, you know, life-threatening emergencies in the ED and how we should be protected in terms of acting on those. So I actually practice in a protective state, but I have had patients come to me from out of state asking for abortion care. One, for example, came and had a planned abortion with Planned Parenthood, and for some reason that date had to be changed to three weeks in the future, which she could not wait for because she had a job and she had a flight back to her hometown. So she didn't have anything emergent. But what can I do to help her or patients like her? Yeah, that's a great question. You, um, as a doctor taking care of a patient in your state, follow the laws of your state. So you are, you know, in a protected state, are able to provide that care if you're an abortion provider or refer for that care. Some states have gone so far as to issue laws that say, you know, are protective of providers that assist someone to get an abortion from out of state. And, you know, and that's great, but currently that's not necessary. Like that is not illegal. I, as a New Hampshire provider, if someone, and this has happened, I'm an abortion provider in New Hampshire. So I have had a handful of patients travel to my site from banned states because they weren't able to access abortion in their state. And I am you know, legally able to provide the abortion in my state. Now, there are certainly people, legislators who would love to try to make that illegal, but so far, you know, that hasn't happened. I do think that they have been successful in creating confusion around that because there are many providers who have a question mark over their head, like, is it legal for me to now take care of this patient from a banned state, even though I'm in a protected state, kind of just like your question And the answer is, yes, it is legal for you to take care of that patient. Yeah, thanks for that. I think there's a lot of misinformation. You know, like you said, it's it's clear as mud. Mm -hmm. Um, Are there any other kind of myths um, or sort of misinformation that's floating around that we should clarify? Yeah. So there's a judge in, I think, in Texas who's trying to make mifepristone illegal, like an activist judge. This is a very safe medication that's been FDA approved in the U.S. since the year 2000 and has been used in Europe for even longer, has a a very long safety record that is very, very good safety record, both here and abroad. Mifepristone under another name, Corlum, is used for Cushing's disease and nobody cares about it. You know, like there's no, for medication abortion, there's something called the REMS, which is a, a risk monitoring system for like dangerous medications, most of which are like chemotherapy agents. There's no REMS on mifepristone when it's called Corlim and used for Cushing's disease. So the whole thing is just, is crazy and political. So there's this activist judge in Texas who's saying mifepristone is unsafe and should be, you know, more regulated than it is and has tried to 
pull it off the market, which was unsuccessful, and then tried to kind of roll back some of the things that have happened um, recently, like allowing mifepristone to be sent through the mail, not having to be taken in front of a clinician. And this case before the Fifth Circuit Court, um, that decision just got upheld. And then now it's up for it's before the Supreme Court to decide. And I think in the like next two years. And so the result of that is going to affect everyone in all states, protected states and banned states. If we have um, restrictions on mifepristone, it's going to be bad for everyone in the whole country. More than half of all the abortions in the United States are medication abortions. And many, if not most, I think it's like 50-50 of all abortion providers in the United States are medication abortion only. So it will be really really, really consequential to abortion access if mifepristone gets rolled back. I actually think the implications for that ruling are even beyond reproductive health because this is them overriding the FDA. This is them overriding us as scientists and as physicians and our care and saying like on certain medications, you're not allowed to make these mistakes. And like that could apply to vaccines also, right? Like that can apply to uh, uh, hormones. I mean, there's a lot of different medicines that have cultural implications and social implications as well and are part of this culture wars uh, battle that's being fought. And I just, I wonder if this happens with this medicine, what are the implications throughout all of medicine for us as well? Well, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. This would set a horrible precedent, you know, that one judge, one activist judge can overrule the FDA and its panels of experts and its process that takes years and, you know, clinical trials and, you know, post-marketing experience. I mean, it's just, I would not believe it if I, I wasn't so used to this kind of thing in abortion care, because in much of medicine, you know, the evidence kind of stands at the top and we revere evidence and even lawmakers tend to respect medical evidence. But in abortion care, for as long as I've been doing this, there have been crazy laws that interfere with the patient and a provider relationship and, you know, make people in certain states say crazy things like abortion is going to cause breast cancer or uh, depression. And, and those are things that, that are just mandated that they just have to say because of the law. And so this is crazy. This is on a scale, I think, that we haven't seen before, but it's the same kind of stuff that we're used to in abortion care, just writ large. Is methotrexate still an option? And is that one threatened at all? Yeah, methotrexate was used for medication abortion uh, before the FDA approval of mifepristone. Um, but mifepristone is um, more effective and probably safer. Um, so, um, yes, it's so the answer is it's still available. It's not threatened. Um, and if mifepristone were to go off the market, we would probably move to uh, mesoprostol only regimens for abortion because um, that's sort of like the next safest and most effective thing. Another physician based in a state with an abortion ban described a case of a patient pregnant at 19 to 20 weeks who presented initially with painless cervical dilation and protrusion of the amniotic sac through the cervix. After being evaluated, she was found to be stable and was sent home. The following day, she presented to the emergency department in severe pain and in advanced labor. 
The physician described how multiple members of the healthcare team declined to be involved in her care because of the state law in effect. Anesthesiology colleagues refused to provide an epidural for pain. They believed that providing an epidural could be considered a crime under the new law. The patient received some IV morphine instead and delivered a few hours later, but was very uncomfortable through the remainder of her labor. I will never forget this case because I overheard the primary provider say to a nurse that so much as offering a helping hand to a patient getting into a gurney while in the throes of a miscarriage could be construed as, quote, aiding and abetting an abortion. Best not to so much as touch the patient who's miscarrying, a gross violation of common sense and the oath I took when I got into this profession to soothe my patient's suffering. Okay, so we've talked about some of the myths that are out there and some of the horrible things coming down the pipeline, or potentially horrible things, I guess. What resources or training opportunities would you recommend for emergency physicians looking to enhance their knowledge of reproductive health care and related legislation? The Ryan Residency Program is sort of a a standard of excellence in residency training program for OBGYN residency training programs in abortion care has a uh, resource for ED providers, and that's available on their website, ryanprogram.org. It's called Information for EM Physicians. So that's a resource that they're building. And then the Reproductive Health Access Project, I think, is really good. It's reproductiveaccess.org. It has provider and patient education um, in abortion and patient education sheets, resources for patients who are looking for self-sourcing an abortion. Other ones that are really good are Aid Access and Plan C. Aid Access and Plan C are both um, entities that offer self-managed abortion, but also have a lot of patient education and provider education. And... Amy, obviously, you know, you live this every day, and I know it's been a challenge um, with some of these recent changes. How can emergency physicians help to advocate for their patients and engage in these discussions um, about reproductive health policy to shape better outcomes? I'm so glad you asked that, Sarah. It's so meaningful. I just want to say it's so meaningful that you are asking that and thinking that. And I have to say that the support of colleagues at my institution um, and around has been really wonderful. And I think that as physicians, um, we all have a really important role to play. So, um, you know, there is political advocacy that you can do, you know, making sure that you know who your representatives are and that you support safe, legal abortion access for your patients because it is healthcare. Then I think it's important for physicians to be active on in within their hospitals and on their medical boards and to take leadership roles and to advocate at those levels because oftentimes we abortion providers need support from people who are decision makers at the hospital level for what we're doing for people from people who kind of understand the need and what we're doing and that it is safe healthcare for patients. So I think those are, you know, things that you can do on kind of like a systemic level. And then, you know, just what you do every day, which is take care of your patients and put them first and put their needs first and um, make sure that you know the laws in your state, but that you also know 
you know, that your legal and professional obligation is to take care of patients and, and give them what they need. Amy, I imagine this is a very complicated landscape to navigate as an emergency medicine physician in a state that does have significant restrictions or even maybe going after other providers or patients themselves. What are the obligations of an emergency medicine physician if they are in a state that's restrictive towards abortion? What are their reporting obligations or requirements not to report? How does that interact? Yeah, that's a great question. There have been uh, emergency room providers who have reported their patients for suspected, you know, self-managed abortion. I have a patient here who who just told me that they did a self-managed abortion and the police like arrested that person. There was a um a story about this in the New England Journal of Medicine that I can find the link for you. Um, but basically this happened, I think, in Texas. A, a patient went in the emergency room, said that she tried to self-manage abortion, needed emergency care. The provider called the police. The patient was arrested. Um, and then eventually her case was dropped. And the reason her case was dropped is because there's no reporting requirement in any state. Providers are not required to report people who have had an abortion or tried to self-manage an abortion. It's not criminalized yet in any state. And in fact, um, our obligation as providers, our law um, by HIPAA is that we cannot disclose medical information without the patient's consent for non-reportable things. Like this is not a reportable offense and we should not report it. And in fact, it's actually illegal for us to disclose protected health information to the police in, in a context like this. So what actually should have happened is that providers should have been arrested or reprimanded for a HIPAA violation, but um, that is not what happened. Um, so, so that's a really important thing to know is that you should take care of your patient. You should not report them. It's a HIPAA violation to report them. And the other thing that kind of comes up a lot is, is how to document, um, because, you know, health, the documentation should be protected, but if documents, healthcare documents are subpoenaed and if someone is arrested and there's a court case, the HIPAA protections no longer apply. So, there's a lot of thinking, people have been doing a lot of thinking around kind of harm reduction in documentation in banned states for, you know, ED and OBGYN providers. And when you see a patient who has undergone a self-managed abortion, the symptoms are really identical to miscarriage symptoms and they're managed exactly the same way. And so there may be um, a way to document that is honest because we have as healthcare providers, we, we cannot put, you know, falsehoods in the chart, but there may be ways to omit certain information just to that isn't medically relevant to protect the patient in case where, you know, someone is going to try to um, report them or, or take legal action against them for abortion, which again, even though it's not criminalized, it doesn't mean people haven't brought charges and subpoenaed records and, you know, violated people's privacy around these things. Wow. So that would look like, you know, 19 year old was pregnant, six weeks came in with vaginal bleeding, and we did XYZ, and then just like leave out the fact that she took a bunch of herbs or something like that. Or... Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. Like, I think if someone ingested herbs, and that was relevant to the medical care, I think you would I would have a hard time 
make an argument that that shouldn't go in the chart. But if, if there is a setting where it's not the the intent to cause abortion is not something that has to is relevant to the chart, then just don't put it in there, I think, is the thinking. Ooh, sounds complicated for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so sad that we have to be in this in this state, but I've heard stories, you know, through I go to the family planning conferences every year and I hear stories of patients obtaining an abortion in a in a protected state like California or uh, you know, a state where abortion is accessible like New Hampshire. And then we're on Epic. I don't know if you're on Epic, but you know how Epic has care everywhere. And care everywhere allows you to see the care that someone has done everywhere. And then they go back to, you know, Louisiana, Texas, Missouri, and that clinician sees in care everywhere that they had an abortion in California and tries to, you know, take to report that or, um, you know, if not legal action, it, it, it ends up becoming a very negative thing for the patient because it's illegal in this state. And ju- as we just discussed, providers don't always know that it was legal for the patient to travel to another state, obtain an abortion, and then come back to their home state. They think they maybe did something illegal and start you know, violating their privacy by talking to a bunch of people about it, and then ultimately maybe erroneously reporting them to authorities. And so that's where charting gets tricky. Thank you, Amy, for kind of walking us through this complicated process, this complicated landscape. Anything else that you think emergency medicine physicians should know? This is just a really an evolving landscape, and it's important for all of us to stay tuned and to stay active and to um, talk to our patients and, in many cases, reassure our patients about what is still legal and accessible for them um, and continue to be involved you know, at the hospital level, at the medical association level, and, you know, in your local and state government, just to continue to advocate, you know, we, healthcare providers who support abortion are in the majority, and we, um, we just need to have our voices um, uplifted and magnified. um, Because right now, the, um, the abortion landscape post Dobbs is hurting our patients. And, you know, we need people to hear that. So basically what we should say is today is Monday, August 21st at one fifty-five Pacific Daylight Time. And we need to publish this ASAP <laughs> because things are moving fast and our colleagues are in trouble. We need to all stand together. So thank you, Amy, for what you do. And um, I appreciate you taking time to talk with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. The Dobbs decision has had a profound effect on reproductive health, including how we practice emergency medicine. The legal landscape surrounding abortion has shifted. This raises questions about access to care, legal uncertainty, and medical ethics. Emergency healthcare providers must stay informed and adapt to this new reality while continuing to prioritize the health and safety of their patients. Delaying care of pregnant patients because of this uncertainty can lead to life-threatening complications and, at a minimum, is substandard. No clinician is required to report an abortion under the law currently, and to do so is likely a violation of HIPAA and state-based privacy laws. EMTALA protects physicians providing life-saving care to any pregnant patient. If you work in a protected state, you may see patients from restricted states coming to your ED for care. 
If you work in a state where abortions are banned, you may be treating patients who have attempted abortions on their own and come in late to get care for complications. RyanProgram.org is a great resource for EM physicians who want to know more about this evolving topic. You know, Sarah, in preparation for this podcast, I spent some time poking around on RyanProgram.org. I really like this site. I felt like it was very emergency medicine forward. And one of the great tips I heard there is we can, as an emergency department, find a champion in both OB and EM to work together to do joint projects like miscarriage and abortion review, hold a joint grand rounds, teach each other about resources so we know when to consult and when to refer locally. We can also bring in your hospital legal team to talk about what's legally required and what's problematic. This local resource can help you address your own state regulations and how it applies in your hospital. I also found Gutmacher.org has a state fact sheet that summarizes the reproductive rights of women state by state. Well, this episode has been a long time coming. And speaking of a long time coming, we (laughs) now have closed captioning of our episodes. If your particular podcast player allows it, closed captioning will display properly. The website will play it if you click the CC in the player. And speaking of social media and online platforms, you can find us on at EM Pulse Podcast. Join us and spread the word. And thank you to the UC Davis Emergency Medicine Department for supporting the care of all patients. And thank you to OM Productions for supporting us. <laughs> <laughs>